you have a Bible, let's turn to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. And I know that uh, we hear a lot about justice today, especially uh, a phrase that has actually become some kind of a movement called social justice. Social justice warriors are those who kind of get out there in the face of a lot of people to say that we need complete equality about everything, you know. And they're the ones that talk about redistribution of wealth and, and uh, taking on a lot of different political sides. You do a good study of social justice, you realize that social justice is, all, is, is, uh, is just a fancy way of saying socialism. And, um, of course, we know what the arguments are kind of surrounding these, these days about that. I bring that up only because one of the themes of, of the prophecy of Amos is that, uh, is that of the righteousness of God, but also the justice of God. And the right justice of God. And the issue <clears throat> that Israel was going through at that time, as well as Judah, because <clears throat> even when the nation was divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, there was a lot of injustice. Injustice toward each other, injustice toward, you know, the rich over the poor, the mistreatment of their own brothers. And really the lesson that we've been going through over the last couple of chapters is, is that when injustice is rampant, like it was in Israel at that time. You need to expect God's judgment. When injustice is rampant, expect God's judgment. He has told them very clearly from the very beginning, from the very first chapter, that the judgment was coming and that that judgment was inevitable. Now, he, he offered time and time again the opportunity to repent. Even up to this chapter, uh, chapter 5, where he says, see good, not evil. I'll talk about that in a moment. The fact of the matter is, the Jewish people at that time, in their blindness, and in the blindness of their sin, they weren't so upset that God was going to judge the unjust in the world. But they were not immune because they weren't living the, the word of God either. They weren't living under the, you know, uh, following the commandments of the Lord. So no one is, no one is immune. Jew or Gentile, the, the judgment is going to come. And all the more for those who had the law and knew the law and should have followed the law. So remember the more that God has given especially in, in, in regard to his word. The more that God has given, the more God expects. See, that, that doesn't in any way uh, cancel out the mercies and the grace of God. The unconditional love of God doesn't cancel it out. But what it does say is that those who, of us who have committed ourselves to God, those who are committed to the word of God to follow after Christ, 
We have to understand that the more that he, God gives us of that understanding of that knowledge and of that word, the more that God does expect from his people. And he expects in response, especially from his people. He expects a response from us. Goes back to this particular verse that most of us know a little bit about. To whom much is given. To whom much is given. It actually comes from Luke 12, verse 48, a parable that Jesus was, was sharing and what he, what he was imparting. And he, he said, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. What is he given to us? He's given us his word. He has given us his commandments. He's given us his statutes. And he's given us his son. The one who is the very imprint of God. Because he is God. So, in the last few weeks as we've been looking at how the Lord has been speaking to his people, it's been a very hard word. And that's the reason why. Because they had his word and they were rejecting it. They had his truth, and they were believing lies. They had his commandments, and they were choosing to break them. They would have God in their, in their very presence, but they chose to worship idols. So the word has been hard. But consider, if you will, <clears throat> this passage that we're going to look at today. Now, already up to this point, and I'll come back to the, the, the verses, but already up to this point, the Lord has offered repentance to them, or at least offered that if they repent, things will be better. And, and that's always going to be the, the response of God toward our repentance is that, you know, he, Life is going to be lived out better for us. Not that it'll be like heaven, you know, I mean, it, it, it will be eventually, but <laughs> we, we have to understand that uh, we have to trust him as the Lord, as the master of our lives. So we get to this place where he's already offered them repentance, and then he says, therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, this is verse 16, by the way, of Amos, verse 5. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, wailing shall be in all the streets. In other words, there is going to be a cry, a, a mourning, a, a, a moaning going on in the streets. Because judgment is inevitable. And they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning. And such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. And in all vineyards shall be wailing. For I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. We've heard that before quite recently in our study of the book of Joel. 
the previous prophecy. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. So after having now issued a strong indictment against the unjust of Israel through his prophet Amos, the Lord now is pronouncing his coming judgment upon them. Now the charges had been quite incriminating. We saw these last week. They hated honest judges and witnesses. They abused and robbed from the poor to acquire more for themselves. They oppressed the righteous and, trust, and the trustworthy of society while taking bribes. They deprived the poor of justice within the courts. And they silenced and censored the wise of the nation through vicious verbal attacks and false witness. That, that sounds like today in our own country. But still... The Lord pleaded with the nation to see good and not evil, to hate the evil and love the good, and to return to honest justice and judgment. Not to social justice, to God's justice. The very heart of our God always tends toward mercy. The very heart of our God always tends toward mercy through his patience and his long-suffering, and all the more toward his own people. Turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, I know this is New Testament, but that's okay. The principle is the same. And we will come back to the Old Testament to see the principle itself. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, it is a, a prophetic passage that Peter uses here to say, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with, is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But then he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Now stop and think about uh, the earlier part of this particular uh, chapter in Second Peter where the Lord is dealing with the mockers who kept, you know, uh, scoffing and saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of God? Or where's the promise that Christ is coming? We've been around a long time. 2,000 years have passed. Where's, where's, where, where is Jesus? He's not really coming, is he? So they scoff at and they mock those who, of us who believe the scriptures, especially the fact that Jesus said, I'm coming again. And those of us who believe in the rapture of the church, because of the, you know, that's pretty clear in the scriptures, but people say, well, there's no such thing. So why do I bring this up? Because in verse 9 it says, the Lord is not slack. He is not slow concerning his promise, as some men count slackness or his tardiness. Why, why is he so late? Folks, it's not up, up to us, it's up to him. He is the God of eternity who created for us a time frame. This, this particular time continuum in which we are is not anything that's going to last. It is only a temporary thing. The fact of the matter is, if you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
you have now entered into the time continuum of heaven, which is eternity. Not in these bodies, because these bodies won't last. Or if the rapture takes place, you won't need them. You'll get a new one. So he says, the Lord is not slow concerning the tardiness of things, but is long-suffering. There's the key. God is long-suffering to usward, to the believer, not willing that any should perish. That really, to all of us, you know, before we were believers or not, that, that none of us should perish. It's not his desire that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Now that's God's desire. Will it happen? No. There are many people who have gone to their death speaking curses unto God. They won't be in heaven. But God has given them every opportunity. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. God has his time frame. And, and we have to trust him in that. But the most important thing to understand about that is that he's long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's given more time than any of us would have given if we were God. Because we, we think in those kind of ways. Now let's get this over with. Let's get this party over. Or actually, let's get this over with and start the party, right? Whatever. But from this particular passage here in Peter, the delay that Peter speaks of indicates that the Lord has a plan for the world and he's working forth his plan. And there can be no question that he wants sinners to be saved. Now that itself is affirmed to us in another uh, New Testament passage in uh, 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 4 where Paul says to his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, and notice verse 4, who will have men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. His desire is that men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And these two passages in 2 Peter and in 1 Timothy give the full spectrum of God's desire not only to save, but to save because he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now that takes us back into the Old Testament where we see in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23 that God says, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But what? He's not willing that any should perish. It's confirmed in verse 32 of the same chapter. Ezekiel 18. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye. 
Repent, in other words. Repent and live. Because if you don't repent of your ways, you're going to die, and you'll die eternally. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, a few chapters later, he says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? Do you know that that brings it into the matter of the will? The will not to follow God? Not to do His will? Not to do the things that, that bless and honor the Lord? Not to do those things that will give you life everlasting? We ourselves would say that doesn't make any sense. But does anything in this world today make any sense at all? The way it's, 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 uh, it seems to be rolling, as it were. Folks, the Lord shows his mercy to all, even though not all will be saved. Now, if anyone knows that, that's the, the Lord does himself. And we should know it because that's how his word is, 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 has been made clear to us. He shows his mercy to all, even though not all will be saved. Which really comes down to this. There are people today, in, in the emerging church movement especially, one Rob, Rob Bell, who, in particular, who has written a book uh, you know, that, that pretty much just says, hey, listen, you know, uh, God's not going to destroy anybody. You know, eventually, I'll, you know, there's, there really isn't a hell, but, but there'll be a heaven for everybody. It's It's crazy. Because that's, that's contradicting the word of God. Contradicting completely the word of God. For the sake of saying, well, we don't want God to, to appear to be so bad. You know, It's not about him being bad. It's about him being just. It's about him being righteous. It's about him being holy. Wow. I, I wanted to read this, this section to you from Romans 11 because, and you said, well, when are we getting to Amos? We're coming, coming back. But in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32, Paul says this, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. I guess I can join Paul and say, I don't want you ignorant of this, so this is why I'm bringing this to you. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Which means that as soon as all the Gentiles that God is, knows will be coming to him and is, will be saved, I mean, then, then comes the time for Israel to be uh, renewed and, and um, uh, revitalized as, as, as we see all of the other passages in, in the prophets uh, leading to their restoration. And he goes on and he says, and so all Israel shall be saved. But don't forget that, that Paul also has said that not everyone who calls himself Israel is Israel. All right, so it's a matter of faith as well. But he says, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away in godliness from Jacob. So what he's, what he's saying here is, is exactly what, what the scriptures are saying about Israel. They have rejected God up to a certain point in their, in, in their history. 
but God, because of his covenant made to them and for them, is going to restore them. And this is what Paul goes on to say, for this is my covenant unto them. When I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. You know, we use that verse for a lot of things, but it's really primarily about Israel. For as you in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. This is why we need to give thanks to God for the mercies that he has for us. He says, and even so have these also not, now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief. In other words, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So that he might have mercy upon all. That's the goal, that he might have mercy upon all. He's a, he's a merciful God. And so the Lord continued to show his mercy toward his disobedient and rebellious people by pleading them or pleading with them to see good and not evil, to hate the evil and, and to love the good. And if the call went unheeded, then this pronouncement would be made and the results would be devastating. The devastation would therefore come. As he said, you know, because, you know, you think of God having this foreknowledge. He's seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. But yet God still gives opportunity for them to repent. Yet throughout the whole of the book of Amos, he is saying, but judgment is inevitable. And therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith, thus wailing shall be in all streets. And they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning. The husbandmen being the farmers. Calling them to mourning. Not enough people to mourn for you in, in the city because they're all dead. And such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. There were groups of people that actually were professional mourners. They would go to you know, funerals and, and they'd be there to mourn and they were pretty good at it. And they'd mourn really loud and... And sometimes very, very dramatically, you know. Sometimes melodramatically. Like novelas, you know. That's, that's melodramatic. Okay. <laughs> if you know what that is. But they would do that. But, and, and so he said, hey, listen, it's such a skillful of lamentation to Wayland. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be busy. And in all vineyards shall be wailing. Again, moaning, the, the crying out because of death. For I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Ugh, listen to that. Sounds familiar? Or sound familiar? So listen, take notice that it was the Lord, the God of hosts, who controls all the hosts of heaven and earth. In other words, the God of all the armies of heaven, who would pronounce this inevitable judgment. And he makes clear, as, as, as he has throughout the earlier part of the prophecy, that judgment is coming against the unjust and cries of anguish would fill all the streets and the public squares of the cities because so many people would be slaughtered, confirming the statement made at the very onset of this chapter, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, a song of mourning, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. 
She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. And, they, and that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. That's devastating when you consider the thousands of people living in the major cities of, 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 that, uh, of that nation at the time, the northern kingdom. They were the most populated of the two kingdoms because of the number of tribes, ten tribes in the north. So there wouldn't be enough professional mourners then, going back to the whole thought here, uh, to lament the loss of so many people that the farmers then from the outer lying areas would have to be summoned to mourn, which means that some of the people who had suffered from the injustices of, of the elite would uh, be called from their fields, to, uh, their fields of endeavor to weep for the very despots and bullies who oppressed them. Because if anybody was looked down at, it was the farmers. That's why they were looking down at Amos, because Amos was a farmer, and he was a farmer from, from, uh, from, from Judah, not, not, from the, not from the northern kingdom of Israel. So who's this hick coming up here and telling us all of this stuff? But that was their attitude. And we know that because that was what God was attacking them about. The vineyards, which had always been places of laughter and cheerfulness. Listen, when they had good crops on, on, in, their, in their vineyards and, and, you know, they collected all that, you know, uh, all those grapes and then they would have Lucy and Ethel be the one who stomp them out in the, in the vats. I get your attention? Anybody remember Lucy and Ethel? You know, I'm, okay, good. You guys are really up on the, you know, the, on, on ancient history here. So. I mean, the vineyards, which had always been places of laughter and cheerfulness, well, because their wine was going to be made. There was music. Dancing in the streets. But they would be silent. Except for the death wail. Except, except for the death moans. And the groaning over the, de the destruction. The awful moaning and crying as, of such... Devastation. This wailing and moaning would be filling the land to its fullest because the Lord was to pass through their midst. Remember I mentioned it. Does it sound familiar? Now the Lord was going to pass through their midst as he had once passed through Egypt to pass over Israel. Their very ancestors. Exodus 11, verses 4 through 7, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the first of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that you may know how the Lord, that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. The Lord puts a difference between the world, because Egypt is always a type of the world. And he puts a difference between the world 
and his people, Israel, at that time of Moses. The next chapter in Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, says, I am holy, I am righteous, I am just, and I am true. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So there's a difference between passing through and passing over. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So it's very significant then that we find there the statement, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. The very same action that God had to take against Egypt, he's going to take against his own people. I'll pass through you. So now Israel would be the recipients of an unbearable infliction of punishment that to, be, that to be done by the Assyrians, of course, a few years later. Not that many years later, but a few years later. And following this pronouncement, the Lord turns to those who, des who desire the day of the Lord. He turns to those who desire the day of the Lord. Picture, if you will, that these to whom the Lord speaks are self-deceived hypocrites. But I'm just trying, I just want you to capture that particular statement. Self-deceived hypocrites. In the midst of all their sin, they still desire the day of the Lord. Now, there are some commentators that say, well, the desire of the day of the Lord is that they didn't really care. They were, you know, they were kind of expressing that, yeah, bring it on, bring it on, whatever. Kind of in opposition to, uh, opposition to the Lord. But that's not the case. Because in the midst of all their sin, they were still desiring the day of the Lord because they thought the day would mean glory and victory and deliverance for all Israel regardless of their heart relationship to God. That's what made them self-deceived. And in being self-deceived, it made them hypocrites. And, and it, it comes down to this. They knew it. They knew it. They had already left Jerusalem as being their place of worship to create their own places of worship in the north. That's why they separated themselves from Judah and Benjamin. But they were still thinking, well, here we are, we're worshiping. We're worshiping God in our own way. We're still Israel. Right? That's still our name. But notice what God says to them. Verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. I mean, if I was God, I'd be doing this. 
That hurt, by the way. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. What's wrong with you? To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. So you desire darkness? As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even dark and, not, and no brightness in it? I mean, folks, it is amazing how far people can fall and still somehow sound so religious and pious. As wretched and despicable as Israel's condition was, there were still those who desired the day of the Lord as if hoping that they would be delivered from their troubles, which happened to be the fruit of their own sin. And this brought the prophet Amos to pronounce a woe on them. Woe. Verse 18, woe. It is the Hebrew word, oi. Oi. We've oftentimes and many times heard, even humorously, the statement, oi vey. But the word, oi, or woe, is very serious in the Hebrew. Because oi was a, a wail or a moan. We've talked about wailing, crying, moaning because of death. Well, oi was the cry, the wail, or moan of grief for those who had died. Oy, unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Woe unto you. There's death behind this judgment. And then the prophet adds, to what end is it for you? To what end? What is, what is, what is the goal here of your desire for the day of the Lord? What is the end of it? What profit, in other words, to you would come from that day. It isn't a day of light. It's a day of darkness. You know, what can be done in darkness, folks? Not really a whole lot. Sleep. Probably a good thing. The only good thing that you could do is sleep. When it's dark, unless you need a little bit of nightlight, I, you know. I think all of us need a nightlight from time to time, as long as it's not the main light in your room. But the fact of the matter is, the distinction in Scripture is that you're, you're either in light or you're in darkness. And if you're in light, you're in God's light. If you're in darkness, you're in the darkness of the world, and, and eventually you're in the darkness of the enemy. So what profit to you would come from that day? It isn't a day of light, it's a day of darkness. What benefit would be yours if, you, if, you're, flee, if you're fleeing from a lion only to be met by a bear? In other words, you're kind of stuck. You're going to get it one way or another. But if for some reason, let's just say that you escape the bear, 
So you flee into your house to rest your hand on the wall because you're so exhausted, you know, exhausted. Only to be bitten by a poisonous snake that you didn't see in the darkness. What good would that be for you? What good is it? If a lion gets you, you're dead. If you escape the lion and you run into a bear, you're dead. If you happen to go under the bear's legs and get to your house, you're dead. What is the Lord saying? The inevitability is you're dead. And it's important to note that these verses are more than likely the earliest recorded use of the term the day of the Lord. Amos came before Joel. So his statement of the day of the Lord, uh, as I mentioned, is, is one of the earliest recorded. But the prophet Joel, of course, that, that was the theme of his letter, of, of his uh, prophecy. Uh, focused his whole prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on that dreadful day. Let's look at Joel chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Really becomes for us a, a kind of a review of what we, where we were when we were studying Joel. It says, Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. So that's just a little inkling of what uh, the day of the Lord is. Later on in Joel chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, it says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, blow the trumpet of warning for all of the people, Sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. It is near at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. By the way, that day of the Lord is yet to come. There have been some small pre-day of the Lord occurrences in Scripture. Certainly after... The Assyrians had destroyed Jerusalem, or I should say, I'm sorry, the Assyrians destroyed the uh, northern kingdom, and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem later on, because both the Israelites in the northern kingdom and the Judahites in, in the southern kingdom were all judged by the Lord for their disobedience and rebellion. So it certainly wasn't a day to long for. But the Jews of Amos' day believed the day of the Lord was to be a time when the Lord would enable them to conquer all their enemies and to establish Israel as the greatest nation on the earth. And I believe even today that we as, as a nation here in the United States have to be very careful about how we see that as well. Because a lot of times you hear, well, this is the greatest nation on the earth. It may very well be next to Israel, because those are the two, you know, Israel is the nation that God is going to bless. There's no doubt about that seen throughout all of Scripture. 
But because they say, well, this is what God's going to do. He's going to conquer the enemies uh, and establish us as the greatest nation on the earth. So we're in, in Israel. We call ourselves Israel, as I said earlier. And, and so this, this must be good for us to have the day of the Lord happen. So they were listening to things like Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 23. And it shall come to pass in that day, which is the phrase leading to the day of the Lord, that the Lord shall punish the hosts of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. After many days shall they be visited. And then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So they say, well, that, that's got to be part, you know, partly for us too because we're Israel. Or maybe they were hearing the prophecy from Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Or Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 8. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey for my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Go for it, Lord. Get those nations. We're Israel. We'll be there. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 3. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, Thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And they would be saying, that's our God. We're his people. But are we his people? If we're committing these sins of idolatry and sexual perversion and injustice, so the true prophets of the Lord that were given to the nations of Israel and Judah were the only ones who truly understood the truth that the day of the Lord was to be a time when God would execute true justice and judgment upon the earth. And all sinners who did not repent, no matter who they were, would face God's judgment. One thing that we should know about the Lord, He shows no favoritism. He shows no partiality. Brings back to mind, to whom much is given, 
To them, much more is required. So he shows no favoritism or partiality, not to any person, Jew or Gentile. All the unjust sinners of the world who did not turn to the Lord in obedience and righteousness, including the Jewish people, would stand guilty before God to be condemned. And merely professing to believe in the Lord would not be enough to save a person. This is what they were doing in the northern kingdom of Israel. They would argue that they were worshiping the Lord. We, we just have a certain vision of him. What vision would that have been but the golden calves that were being worshipped in Bethel and in, in Dan? And throughout the country, they were still worshiping idols on, you know, on the mountaintops and the high places, as they're called in the scriptures. But they weren't repentant. And only true repentance and a changed life would save a person from the coming day of the Lord. That's why it's so important for us to know Jesus intimately as our Lord and Savior. To have a personal relationship with him. Because you see, while they understood the day of the Lord to be a great day of, of, of reckoning and darkness, that day is yet to happen to, you know, in our lifetime. It's closer now to us than any time before. True repentance is necessary. A changed life is necessary. Following after the counsel of the Lord, the counsel of his word, believing and accepting the truth taught by Jesus, Not only to love one another as the day of Christ approaches, but to love even those who persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. The day is coming. If anything, that should really stir our hearts. The apostles were very clear. Paul was very clear about it. Peter and John, both, or both of them along with Paul, were very serious about the condition of the heart before the Lord comes. We sometimes don't take it as seriously as we need to. But we have to remember, God is not a respecter of persons. In Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. 
But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So even in the time, now remember that in the time of the apostles, they were the ones that declared it was already the last days. So they were ready and waiting for the, the return of Christ even then. But remember the long-suffering of the Lord. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is, 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 is not slack concerning his promise, but willing that none should perish. Given so many people an opportunity. If the Lord had come 20, 30 years ago, how many of us would be lost today? And lost for eternity. I don't know that we ever think about these things that way. But we need to constantly consider those things. Never to, never to take these things lightly or never to take things for granted. Paul in Romans 2, verses 7 through 11 says, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious. Now he's speaking to the church here. Unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Paul in essence is saying what Amos said to the you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the northern kingdom of Israel. Glory, honor, and peace. Life. To every man that worketh good. Amos said, seek good and turn from evil. Love good. Hate to evil. Glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew who had God's word. To the Gentiles who died in their being Gentile and have now become the church. Because there's three designations now. We've oftentimes... You know, subdivided the whole world this way. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's the third, the church, the believer in Jesus Christ. Because the, the middle wall of partition has been torn down. There are neither Jews nor Greeks, bond or free, but all are one in Christ. Folks, no respect of persons with God. So as we close on this section of scripture, we have to remember again the contrasts that Jesus himself gave us in the grand statement that he made in John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now please understand that to believe is to believe with all of your heart. Not just to believe in your mind. Not to have just some kind of mental assent to this truth of who Jesus is. But to know deep down inside of you. That you are changed. That you are a different person. That you are no longer the person you had been and have and had always been. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17. You're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. All things have become new. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed. He has not trusted him. He has not given his life fully and completely to, uh, to the Lord in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Why are you desiring the day of the Lord? It's a day of darkness and not light. So the condemnation is that light has come into the world. That's Jesus. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Folks, the world today does not like the light that's coming out of your life. And it has gotten worse and worse over the last 10 to 15, maybe even 20 years. Until today, it is all-out war against Christianity. It is all-out war against the believer in Jesus Christ. It is all-out war against Jesus Christ himself. It is all-out war against the word of God itself in our, in our country and in our society today. Every label that is being thrown upon any conservative today, and I'm not talking about politics, folks. I'm talking about the fact that every label that has been thrown to them is going to be thrown on you. And they'll call you racist, and they'll call you, you know, homophobic, and they'll call you all kinds of things. When that's the furthest thing from the truth because the Lord has changed your heart to love the unloved, to love the unbeliever, to love the unlovely and the unloving. But they'll hate you. Sadly, they'll hate you with a perfect hatred, a completed hatred. But you stand in the light of the perfect love of Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul or Jesus goes on to say, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought, produced, and worked out in God. In God, by God, 
for God, through God. Those things that we do are honored by the God who has called us to be light and to be strong light in the darkness that we live.